0: Amen. Please remain standing as we continue our study in the life of Joseph from Genesis chapter 37 and verses 12 to 36. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. O Lord, You have told us from Your own lips that these things were written for our sakes so that we might have the comfort of the gospel, even from A passage that seems to have nothing to do with the cross, but it has everything to do with the cross. So lift our eyes above whatever trials and difficulties we might be facing to behold and believe Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. We pray in his mighty name, amen. Genesis 37, beginning at verse 12, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him, and throw him into one of the pits, then we will see what becomes of his dreams. Then a the fierce animal will devour him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify it, whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but He refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Kelly and I finally got around to watching the surprise blockbuster hit from this past summer, Sound of Freedom, which chronicles the life of Homeland Security agent Tim Ballard, who gave up that job to pursue a career and a life of rescuing children from human trafficking. It's a very hard film to watch, but I think it's very necessary. And it centers at the beginning around this brother-sister pair who lived in poverty in, um, I think it was Honduras or Guatemala, and one of the recruiters for these wicked human traffickers comes along, and she promises the father of these two children that she can provide them a life of ease and wealth if they will come and try out to be models, and it's a sham. They... The father takes the children to this, what looks like going to be a setup to try out for modeling, and it's a, it's a front to take them into trafficking. And as I was thinking about that movie, it brought my attention again to these verses before us. See, Joseph was was a lot like this brother and sister in that movie. The be, movie begins with them just playing, having fun, being kids, and then everything's changed in an instant for them. That's how Joseph's day started when Moses was writing this story down for us. Probably heard it orally from somebody else. Joseph's day started off, as one author put it, a prince in Israel, and then it ended up with him being a slave in Egypt. But here's what I want us to see from the text this morning. When the worst happens in your life, in my life, God is still at work to accomplish His sovereign, gracious purposes. When the worst happens, that's that's what He's up to. And we'll look at this text under three headings. We'll see that there's a pit, there's a plan, and there's a purchase that God uses to accomplish His sovereign, gracious purposes. First of all, though, a pit. Remember we saw last week When we read this story, we we tend to think of ourselves as more like Joseph than his brothers, but we're more like his brothers than we're like Joseph. And so we need Joseph's Jesus. And here Joseph comes down from Shechem to Dothan, and he meets this man who says, your brothers have gone this way. He's been sent by his father. He comes proudly wearing the coat of many colors, this royal garment that signifies he's the favored son. And as he comes to find them, he, he's walking across a land that would have been uninhabited. We need to know a little bit about ge- biblical geography to kind of get the force of this text. The original readers would have been surprised that somebody met Joseph here. This was a wilderness area. Nobody went there. And so already Moses is is doing something for us. He's hinting at a storyline he wants us to follow, namely that that God is at work even when we can't see Him. And as, as Joseph approaches, who speaks up first? Reuben, the firstborn, the one who should have been leading the way, reminding us that this is a broken family. He hadn't learned to lead from his father, and so he didn't lead in this situation. In fact, he was the instigator of this evil. And as Joseph approaches, they say two things. First, they say, let's kill him. And then they say, no, actually, let's make some money while we're at it. And it's interesting because we're also introduced to Judah right here, who's going to figure prominently in the next chapter, uh, which we could title under, you know, R-rated stories in the Bible, so prepare yourself for next week. But here's Judah, and isn't it fascinating that Judah's the one who seems to be a little bit more humane, but he's actually just as cruel. He says, no, let's sell him. And and this reminds us, friends, because if if you know the biblical storyline, and if you don't, that's okay, Judah is the tribe from whom Jesus will come. So when you look at Jesus's family tree, it's not like the all-star campus ministry went on to be successful elder in the church family tree, okay? This is a messed up family. The very great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of our earthly, from an earthly perspective of our Lord says, let's sell him into slavery as a more humane solution. But you see, he should have known his Bible better. Exodus 20, for example, forbids man-stealing, the kind of which leads to slavery, the kind of which, which was practiced in this country. It's such a grievous crime in God's sight because whether you kill somebody or whether you sell them into slavery, you have effectively stolen their lives. That's why this was wickedness here. The deeper thing Moses wants us to see as he writes this story down is that God's people are not spared from the tragedies in this life. That, that sometimes can, begin, can be how we begin to think. You know, I'm a Christian. Life's gone pretty well. And this may, these bad things may happen to people outside the covenant, outside God's covenant people. But looking around a room with this many people in it, I have to believe and I have to know that everybody in here has deep hurts and tragedies have happened in ways that I can't even imagine. And if they haven't happened, they will. Everybody in here has some form or fashion of a tragedy coming to your life, and that will crush you if you don't understand the gospel. Yeah, see, that's that's what Moses wants us to see. He wants us to see that tragedy is going to hit you, it's going to catch you off guard, and it's going to come when you least expect it, just like it did for Joseph, but God's not done yet. As we're going to see, this story's just getting started, and He also wants us to notice this. This is how it would read to the first readers in the original. They would kind of get this cadence, and you pick it up here in the English a little bit. There's a man, and we could put it like this, that just happens to be on his way to Dothan, and they just happen to find, he just happens to find his brothers, and they just happen to not kill him, and there just happens to be these traitors coming. All of this is meant to say none of this happens by coincidence. No, Moses wants us to see God's hand invisibly guiding, directing, overseeing, intending, actualizing all the events that are written down right here for his sovereign, gracious purposes never forget that in the middle of tragedy god is still sovereign we'll come back to that at the end so there's a pit then there's a a plan we talked a little bit about this the the brothers begin to conspire together and here's here's what's happening god is allowing their sinfulness to have free reign it didn't happen overnight They didn't get jealous overnight. It's been built up over the years. And think about this, friends. These are not uneducated pagans. These are the covenant people of God. In fact, these are the founders of God's old covenant people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And here they are conniving, cruel, deceitful, not exactly role models that we're going to hang up in Sunday school. How many times have we seen a flannel graph of this scene in Sunday schools? How many children's books are written like, let's now turn to the story of Joseph's brothers. You don't read that. And yet God puts this story in here to remind us, this is who we are. This is who you and I are, left to ourselves. Everybody in here is just one decision away from disaster. God had restrained them to this point, and then He gives them free reign. He says, you want to sin? Fine. Fine. Here's what's going to happen. And if you walk with Jesus long enough, we can get lulled to sleep by thinking, you know, I'm doing a little bit better. Praise God if you are. But never forget, given the right circumstances, the right opportunity, anybody in here is capable of anything at all. That's why, as God tells us this story, we need to be reminded of it because we need him. His brothers forgot that. They never really learned the lesson. They're not going to learn it till later how dependent they were upon the God of their fathers. And so this plan is concocted. They throw Joseph into a pit, and and Moses makes it a a point to say there's no water. It's hot. It's the desert. And think about what's going through Joseph's mind. He, He started this day the favored son, and now he's sitting in a pit. And then his brothers sit down to eat lunch. think about that they had so dehumanized their brother by their view of him and their rage and jealousy they could sit and eat a sandwich while contemplating whether to kill or sell their brother and then Reuben tries to come to the rescue and of course he he he's as selfish as Jacob is as we'll see in a moment he says what about me now guys you messed up the plan so he said let's take a goat I'll dip the robe in it. And notice how they refer to Joseph when they come to Jacob, this son of yours. So they've, they've totally detached himself. Judah makes a show and says, he's our own flesh. That's nah, just a show. They don't care about him. And note the irony here. If you go back just a few chapters in Genesis when Jacob steals the birthright from Esau, how does he do it? Well, his mother slaughters a goat, takes the skin, and covers Jacob's arms with it to make it feel, because Isaac was blind, like he's Esau, his hairy older brother. He uses a goat and a garment to deceive Isaac. The very same methods now that are being used to deceive Jacob. One of the things that reminds us, friends, is be sure your sin will find you out. What we do, especially as parents, our kids tend to pick up on, don't they? It's frightening, isn't it? And one of the things that scares the ever-living out of me as a, as a youngish, flattering myself with that term, kind of dad, is looking at my kids and then they say something. I'm like, where would you hear that? You don't want them to answer that question. Because <laughs> you know the answer. <laughs> From you, dad. And that's where the brothers had learned this. They'd seen their dad deceive. Fail in his trust of God, and he picked it up and passed it on. But what this also teaches us is that God is still at work even in the midst of wicked plans. You might be going through something this morning, been slandered, been torn down, got a diagnosis you didn't ask for, lost a bunch of money you didn't see coming, things are hard at work, you hate your marriage. Hate your siblings, whatever it is, you're feeling just everything falling apart. And when life happens, as it will, we're going to ask that question, aren't we? Why does stuff like this happen to me, God? And here's the way it's usually phrased, isn't it? This is kind of the holy grail of, of philosophical questions to disprove Christianity. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's how it's asked. It was the title of a famous book about 30-something years ago written by a Jewish rabbi. And let me say just a couple things in response to that. First, let's say that, that if we ask the question that way, we're asking the wrong question. We need to reframe the question in biblical terms. See, the question isn't, and this, when we ask it like this, why do bad things happen to good people, we're re- revealing our own assumptions, aren't we? Our mistaken assumptions. The real question ought to be this. Why do good things ever happen to bad people like us? See, it's only when tragedy strikes that we really start to get mad at God, isn't it? Meanwhile, day by day, we go through our lives, and He's blessing us innumerably. He's given us so much, and we rarely stop to thank Him, and I'm speaking to me. And yet when tragedy strikes, we're the first to blame God, and that reveals our mistaken assumption that somehow we're basically good people. And the Scriptures tell us differently, don't they? Romans 3, verses 9 to 18 says, there's no one good, not even one, the poison of asps is under their tongues, their feet are swift to shed blood, none is righteous, no, not one. need to get the question right. I'm not minimizing pain, I hope, when I put it like that, but if we ask the right question, namely like, where are you, God, then we'll find a home in the Psalms. We'll find that God's people have always struggled. And notice what's happened to Joseph. God has been speaking to him, and now he's silent. This is a man who had direct revelation from God. He's not going to hear from God for a while. You think Joseph might have asked, where are you, God? You just talked to me in a dream. They're bowing down to me, and I'm in a pit. We do the same thing with the promises of God. The only solution, my friends, is to remember the cross. My favorite verses in the New Testament, Acts 2, 23. This Jesus, and listen to how pointed Peter is. This Jesus, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you by wicked hands took and crucified. And we want to ask him, Peter, which one was it? Was it God's plan or was it with these people? Peter says, yes, there's both. And that's because Peter had learned the lessons of the Old Testament well, as a good Jewish man would have. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he learned the lesson of this story. Namely, that if God isn't sovereign over the, even the evil things that happen to you, we've got a lot more to be concerned about. If God isn't sovereign over tragedy, my friends, then it is senseless. But you see, what the Scriptures are concerned to teach us on every page, what the cross most specifically teaches us is that the worst that we can do is all part of the best plan that God has for us. That's what he teaches us. That's why we have to go to the cross. If tragedies are senseless, my friends, if chance is what governs the universe, which is a contradiction in terms because chance is a meaningless term, it's a placeholder for I don't know. Don't anybody with scientific jargon fool you with that. Things happen by chance means things happen by I don't know. Okay? If that's what's ruling the universe, then we've got really much bigger fish to fry. But you see, as we read this story, God's orchestrating even their sin to work for Joseph's good. I don't think he felt that way in the moment. We might not feel like that even when we suffer the consequences of our own sins in this life, even when evil things are done to us. We may not feel that way, but we have to see the bigger picture. That's why God put this story in the Bible. The last point here, we see a a pit, a plan, and then a purchase. Here's Joseph in the pit, and then a rope is lowered through the darkness. You can see him looking up at it. Maybe he thinks to himself, my brothers have changed their minds. They've come around. But then he learns the sad reality is He's pulled up gruffly from this pit. He hears a strange language and he knows, he knows immediately when he sees the Midianites the Ishmaelites. He knows what's happening. And then picture him as he's watching his brothers receive the money that's going to sell him into a lifetime of bondage. And here's maybe the worst part. You see, if you you follow the biblical geography here, um, we've by archaeology and other uh, historical research, we found that this was a massive trade route that, that they're right near that went from Israel down to Egypt. And where they went, based on from Shechem to Dothan, that trade route probably ran right by Joseph's homestead. In other words, as he's going down to Egypt through his prison bars in that caravan, he saw his home. You think he maybe wondered, where are you, God, right now? I've been sold into slavery. I thought I was the favored son. His life started as a dream. That's how we're introduced to this proud young man, and now he's living in a nightmare. You might not be sold into slavery physically, but are, are you enslaved to pills, to porn, to alcohol? Whatever it is, we have so many modern slaveries for our spirits, don't we? Maybe you feel trapped in your relationships, and everything just seems like the lights have gone out, and you feel like you're living in a nightmare. And it, here's, here's the good news. This story's not finished, and neither is yours. God is not done with Joseph and he's not done with you. That's what the cross tells us definitively. As we finish, let's ask a couple questions. Questions that I think lie at the heart of this text. Maybe the the central question is this there's going to come a point in your life where you look up and look around and you may ask it this way How did I get here? I never thought I'd be this kind of person. Look at the decisions I've made. Is is God still for me? Does He still have something for me? And you may not get that low, but you may still have some kind of low-level, underlying regrets. You're questioning all the time, what did I do? And when we ask that question, we come back to the heart of what God's saying here. Be patient. I'm not done yet. And you see, when, when we suffer, when tragedies strike, what does suffering tend to do to us? At least in my life. It tends to make us selfish, doesn't it? Now that what Reuben did? He, he anticipated what's going to happen. He said, what am I, I going to do? Then look at Jacob, again, showing off his parenting skills. Not really. He refuses to be comforted. His kids are like, what about us, Dad? And if there was any doubt about who the favorite was, it's been instantly removed when he refuses to stop grieving. That further alienates his sons. That's our default response, friends. Suffering changes how we talk to ourselves, how we think about life, how we think about God, and the biggest issue we face is that we tend to turn inwards Instead of crying out and looking up. And so questions arise from that, don't they? Like, what is God up to when he allows me to sin? I've struggled against these sins forever, you think to yourself. And I don't seem to have any victory over them. What is God doing? Why doesn't he just answer my prayer right away? One thing I can tell you that he's up to when sin gets the better of us he is keeping us close to him by showing us our weakness and he can use even the worst things we've done to bring good out of them and he'll use our own sin and the evil in the world around us to conform us to the likeness of christ that's the goal of being a christian to look more like jesus and here's the thing We would choose a different way to make this happen, wouldn't we? But here's what God says to us. If you are going to be like Jesus, he said to us, a disciple is not above his teacher. If they've done this to me, what are they going to do to you? In other words, any suffering you undergo in this life is part of the plan of God. Just like it was for Jesus. We can't do better than he did. If you want to wear the cross, the crown of gold, you're going to have to wear the crown of thorns. You don't get to Easter Sunday unless you go through Good Friday. And nobody wants to go to this school, but here's the thing God does when he enrolls us there. When we fight and kick and say, God, I just want out. He will come back and say, my dear student, I have to teach you this way. But I'm a teacher that comes and walks alongside you. I will never let you be untutored. I will make sure you know that you won't go through this alone because I have sat where you sit." Isn't that right? Isn't this what the story of of Joseph teaches us so far? What's happened already that we see Jesus so clearly here? He's sold for a price of silver, is Joseph. What happens with Jesus? He's sold for the price of a slave at the time in the Roman Empire, betrayed by one of His closest friends, sold for silver. How did Paul put it in Philippians 2, 6 to 11? He says that even though Jesus was in the form of God, He took to Himself the form of a servant. That's such a sanitized translation. I don't know why we do this in our English Bibles. Every time you see the word servant in the New Testament, like 95% of it, just cross it out and put slave. That's what the Greek word means. Slave. He was God in the form of God and He became the form of a slave. The lowest of the low. He who was rich beyond all splendor. He emptied Himself of His royal robe. Not unwillingly, like Joseph, but willingly why so that those of us who are enslaved to so many things might become sons that's why we confessed adoption this morning the only reason we can say our father and mean it is because his son was divested of all his glory and was treated like a slave and thrown into a pit of despair on the cross And because He's risen again, we know. Evil and suffering don't get the last word. Your sin, my sin, doesn't get the last word. What about the last question? What about all the evil in the world? I don't have the answer for all of that. Shocker, I know. Nobody else does either. I don't know why there are such things as human traffic. I don't know why there's sexual abuse. I don't know why families that want to have babies can't have babies. I don't know why there's untold, horrific occurrences every day in this world, not just evil, but so much of it. Why? I do know this. That when you come to Jesus, you meet the only God in human history <clears throat> excuse me, who's, who took evil seriously. You read other religious texts, you look at the leaders of other world religions, they don't take evil seriously. God takes it so seriously He sends His Son to become one of us, be treated evil with evil and, and despised in order to raise him up from the dead to say to us, there is no circumstance you will walk through. There is no trial you will face. There is no tragedy coming to your life where you can look up from that tragedy to Jesus and say, you don't understand. Because he can look right back at us and say, yes, I do. I suffered, I was there. I've been right where you have been and I will walk with you to the end this trial see that that's the difference between christianity and everything else isn't it jesus is the only god to borrow the phrase of shame researcher brene brown he's the only god who can look at us and say the two most powerful words when you're suffering me too That's what we want we want a fellow traveler to know that we're not alone that's what joseph wanted And as we're going to see joseph looked ahead and saw Jesus. And you and I can look up now and see Jesus in the middle of everything that's going on in the world around us and in our own lives, because the resurrection guarantees evil and suffering. will never get the last word. Isn't that tremendous to think about? In the midst of what all we don't know, we can weep with those who weep. We can come alongside others and comfort, as Paul says, those who need comforting with the comfort with which we ourselves have received from Jesus in our own trials and tragedies. As John Piper put it, don't waste your suffering. Pass on what God's taught you when others are suffering. Bring them to the cross with you. I remember reading a story not too long ago about ancient astronomers And one of the ways they would train themselves is to go to the deepest, darkest pit they could find where they had a shallow opening and learn the stars with limited vision, learn their movements from their perspective so that they would know what to do. They would know how the stars worked. And it brought to my mind what we've been studying here this morning. When the lights go out, friends, The stars of the gospel are going to shine the brightest for you. That's how we learn. It's when those tragedies strike, when we feel so abandoned and so alone that we look up and we see the brightness and the goodness of God's gospel, the clearest. As one of the old Puritan writers put it, when I am in the cellar of affliction, There do I find my Lord's choicest wines. So here's the thing to remember as we leave here today. No matter what's happening, evil loses. Praise God. Can't wait for that day. Jesus wins. Okay, so if you don't want to go back and listen to the revelation sermons I preached and taxed your patience with, there they are in two words. Jesus wins. Okay? Okay. That's what you had to look forward to. That's what I had to look forward to. Evil loses, Jesus wins, sin never gets the final word because the Son of God has come back from the pit so that nobody in here will ever have to stay in whatever pit they're in forever, ever again. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We minimize the sufferings of others in our own selfish suffering. And yet you're so patient. Even when we're hopeless, maybe even blaming you, you never give up on us. You never stop loving us. You never cease to treat us with kindness and gentleness. And Lord, we might be like Joseph this morning, wondering where you are, but help us to look to Joseph's Jesus. Help us to have faith like him that looked beyond the trials and circumstances to see your hand at work in everything comfort those who need comforting lord bring us all to the foot of the cross and teach us more about jesus we pray in his name amen please stand as we sing the old gospel song i'd rather have jesus